Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2013. Titled Origins, this podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 1, December 29 to January 4, Jesus, Creator of Heaven and Earth. The Quarter's Introduction. The writer of our lessons this quarter is Professor L. James Gibson, who is Director of the Geoscience Research Institute in Loma Linda, California. He has written numerous articles on the relationship between creation and science. The introduction is titled, In the Beginning of the Beginning. Open the Bible at the first book, first chapter, first line. Notice it says nothing about Christ dying for our sins, nothing about the second coming, Nothing about his bodily resurrection from the grave. It says nothing about the state of the dead, the day of atonement, or even the seventh-day Sabbath. The first words of the Bible don't talk about these teachings because they and the truths associated with them are meaningless apart from what the first words of the Bible do talk about, and that is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Creation is the foundational truth of Scripture. All other biblical teachings, the Incarnation, the Cross and the Second Coming, are founded upon the truth that our world was created by the Lord. That's why creation appears not only in the opening pages of the Bible, but in the first five books of Moses, in the Prophets, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in Acts and in Revelation. And in almost all cases... The theological context demands that it be taken literally. For instance, Paul wrote that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Romans 5.14 Paul not only links a literal Adam to a literal Jesus, but his context in Romans 5 ties that link to the plan of salvation a crucial doctrine that we understand in the most literal sense as well. We are fallen beings who face eternal destruction or eternal life. And here's Jesus himself quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Matthew nineteen four to 6 If Jesus accepted and taught the creation account as literal, how can those who claim to be his followers do otherwise? Our name, Seventh-day Adventist, itself bears witness, direct witness, to a six-day creation. Though some voices may urge us to incorporate evolution into our theology, Seventh-day Adventism and Darwinism are inherently contradictory. Logically, one cannot hold both views at the same time. Thus, this quarter's lessons delve into the doctrine of creation as depicted in Genesis 1 and 2 and explores its implications for a number of our beliefs, including morality, sin, marriage, stewardship, and more. Although working on the assumption that the story is literal, the quarter will show again and again how the central message of the Bible is built upon the historical truth of the creation story.
Take, for instance, the gospel. According to scripture, humans were created better than we are now. Jesus came to rescue us from death brought by the sin of Adam and Eve. But in an evolutionary model, the Lord incarnates into an evolved ape, created through the vicious and painfully murderous cycle of natural selection, all in order to abolish death, the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.26 But how can death be the enemy if it was one of God's chosen means for creating humans? The Lord must have expended plenty of dead Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and Homo neanderthalensis in order to finally get one in his own image, Homo sapiens. If evolution were true, then Jesus came to save mankind from the process that God used to create it in the first place. We can see here that mixing biblical truths with non-biblical views generates logical absurdities that should be of concern to the honest seeker of truth. As we go through this quarter, we'll see even more reasons why a literal six-day creation is essential to all that we believe and why to compromise on creation is to undermine the basis of the gospel and the teachings that make us what we are. Sabbath afternoon, December 29. Jesus, creator of heaven and earth. Our memory text this week is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's read that again. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Only something greater than what it creates could have created it. Thus, only a being greater than the universe, could have created the universe. And that being is the God who is revealed in the Bible, the God whom we worship and serve because, among other things, He is our Creator. We also learn that this God, the one who created the universe, the one who has spun those billions of galaxies across the expanse of the cosmos, is the same one who came to earth to live among us as a human being, and even more amazing to bear in himself the punishment for our sins. Sometimes we hear of things that are too good to be true. What could be better, though, for us as sinful human beings in a fallen, painful world than to know the wonderful truth of our Creator's love, a love so great that he would come down in the person of Christ and link himself to each of us with ties that never can be broken. In response to such a wondrous truth, How are we to live our lives? Sunday, December 30, In the Beginning Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There are many deep truths in that simple text, one of the most profound being that the universe itself had a beginning. 
while that idea might not seem so radical to us today, it goes against the long-held belief in an eternally existing creation. Not until the 20th century, when the Big Bang model of origins took hold, did the notion that the universe had a beginning gain general acceptance. Until then, many believed that it had always existed. Many people resisted the concept of the universe having been created because that implied some sort of creator. In fact, the name Big Bang was intended to mock the notion of a created universe. But the evidence that the universe had a beginning has become so strong that nearly all scientists have accepted it, at least for now. Scientific views, even those once deemed sacrosanct, are often changed or refuted. Question. Read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. What does this verse tell us about God and the creation of the universe? By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. As with Genesis 1.1, Hebrews 11 verse 3 is full of mystery and things that are unexplainable by our present knowledge. Yet, the text does seem to tell us that the universe was not formed from pre-existing matter, the universe was created by the power of God's word. That is, both matter and energy were brought into existence by God's power. Creation from nothing is known as creation ex nihilo. We often credit humans with the creation of various things, but humans are incapable of creating from nothing. We can change the form of pre-existing matter, but we have no power to create ex nihilo. Only the supernatural power of God can do that. This is one of the most dramatic differences between God and humans, and it reminds us that our very existence depends on the Creator. In fact, the verb created in Genesis 1.1 comes from a Hebrew root word that is used only in reference to the creative activity of God. Only God, not humans, can do that kind of creating. Actually, it says here to also look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. And that reads, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So, to finish today, why is a supernatural creator one who exists above and beyond the creation, the only logical explanation for the creation. Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Monday, December 31, the heavens declare. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. 
It also says to look at Romans 1.19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. The question is, how have you experienced the truth of these texts? How has modern science helped us to even more appreciate the power and wisdom of God as Creator? Not just any kind of universe would be capable of supporting life. In fact, it seems that the universe must be extremely well designed in order for life to exist. First, the building blocks of all matter, atoms, must be stable enough in order for stable material objects to be created. The stability of atoms depends on the forces that hold the parts of the atoms together. Atoms contain charged particles that both attract and repel each other. The forces of attraction and repulsion must be carefully balanced. If the attractive forces are too strong, only large atoms can form, and there would be no hydrogen. Without hydrogen, there would be no water, and thus no life. If the repulsive forces are too strong, only small atoms can form, such as hydrogen, and then there would be no carbon or oxygen. Without oxygen, there can be no water and no life. Carbon is also essential for all forms of life as we know it. Not only must the atoms be stable, but they must be able to interact with one another in order to form vast numbers of different chemical compounds. There must be a balance between the forces that hold the molecules together and the energy required to break up the molecule in order to permit the chemical reactions upon which life depends. The precise fitness of our universe for life has gained the admiration of scientists and has led many of them to comment that the universe appears to be designed by an intelligent being. The world also must have been wisely designed in order for life to exist. The range of temperatures must be compatible with life, so the distance from the sun, the speed of rotation and the composition of the atmosphere must all be in appropriate balance. Many other details of the world must be carefully designed. Truly, God's wisdom is shown in what He created. Tuesday, January 1 the power of his word. Question. Read Jeremiah 51 verses 15 and 16 and Psalm 33 verses 6 and 9. In addition to wisdom, what other attribute of God is mentioned in the creation? How was this attribute expressed in creation? More important, what are the implications of this truth for us? Jeremiah 51 verses 15 and 16. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. And Psalm 33 verses 6 and verse 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. 
Though we cannot know exactly how God created, we are told that it was through his powerful word. All the energy in all parts of the universe had its origin in the word of God. All the energy in all our fuels came from God's power. All the gravity throughout the universe, every star guided in its course, and every black hole result from God's power. Perhaps the greatest amount of energy is within the atom itself. We are justifiably impressed by the power of nuclear weapons in which a small amount of matter is converted into a large amount of energy. Yet scientists tell us that all matter contains large amounts of energy. If a small amount of matter can produce the vast amount of a nuclear weapon, consider the amount of energy stored in the material of the entire world. But that is nothing when compared with the energy stored in the matter of the universe. Imagine the power that God utilized to bring the universe into existence. Many scientists believe that anything God may do in the creation is restricted by the laws of nature. But this idea is contrary to the Bible. God is not restricted by natural law. Instead, God has determined natural law. God's power has not always followed the patterns that we call the laws of nature. For example, one of the fundamental laws of nature is the law of conservation of matter and energy. This law states that the total amount of matter and energy in the universe remains constant. But how could the universe have appeared from nothing if this law were inviolable? God's creative word is not bound by the laws of science. God is sovereign over all his creation and is free to carry out his will. So, to think about this. Dwell the best that you can on the size of the universe. Think about the incredible power needed in order to create it. And to think that the God who wields such power loves us even died for us. How can you learn to draw comfort from this amazing truth? Wednesday, January 2 Jesus, Creator of Heaven and Earth Question. Read John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and verse 14, as well as Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16, and Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. How do the New Testament writers identify the Creator? What are the implications of the answer? First of all, John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And... Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. 
and Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. John refers to Jesus as the Word, or Logos, and equates him with God. More specifically, Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. In John's day, the term Logos was commonly used to represent the creative principle. John's early readers would be familiar with the concept of Logos as a creative principle, or even as a creator. John applied this familiar concept to Jesus, identifying him as the true creator. Jesus, the Logos, the incarnate one who lived among us, was not only present in the beginning, he was the one by whom the universe was created. This means that we could read Genesis 1-1 as, In the beginning Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Paul's words in Colossians 1 resonate with those of John in the identification of the Creator as Jesus Christ. By him, all things were created. Paul adds two other attributes of Jesus. First, he is the image of the invisible God. In our sinful state, we cannot see God the Father, but we can see Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we can study the life of Jesus. Second, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of creation in Colossians 1.15. In this context, firstborn does not refer to origin, but to status. The firstborn was the head of the family and the heir of the property. Jesus was the firstborn in the sense that, as creator and through the incarnation, his taking upon himself our humanity, he is the rightful head of the human family. Jesus was not a created being, rather, from eternity, he was one with the Father. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, repeats the same points as in Colossians. Jesus is appointed heir of all things, and is the one by whom the world was created. In addition, he is the exact representation of the Father's nature, another way of stating that he is the image of God. So to finish today, how would you respond if someone were to ask you, what is your God like? What justification could you give for your answer? Thursday, January 3, The Creator Among Us Question. Read John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, and chapter 9, verses 1 to 34. What do these texts reveal about the creative power of God? First of all, John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. 
And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then chapter 6, and verses 8 to 13. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the barleys, the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten them. And then in John chapter 9 and verses 1 to 34. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbours and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, 
Ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered and said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvellous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Each of these miracles gives us a glimpse of God's power over the material world that he himself created. First, what kind of process would be required to change water directly into wine? None that we know of. Indeed, it took an act outside the laws of nature, at least as we now know them, to do what Jesus did here. In the miracle of the fish and loaves, Jesus started with five loaves and two small fish and ended up with enough to feed a multitude and have twelve baskets of leftovers. All the food was made of atoms and molecules. At the end, there were many times more atoms and molecules of food than when Jesus started to feed the crowd. From where did the additional molecules come, if not by the supernatural intervention of God? Furthermore, what physical changes happened to the blind man when he was healed? He was blind from birth. Thus his brain had never been stimulated to form images from the messages sent by the eye through the optic nerve. So his brain had to be rewired in order to process the incoming information, form images and interpret their meaning. Next, there was something wrong with the eye itself. Perhaps some photoreceptor molecules were produced incorrectly as a result of a mutation in his DNA. Or perhaps some mutation had occurred at birth in the genes that control the development of the parts of the eye, the retina, the optic nerve, the lens, and so on. Or perhaps some mechanical damage had occurred that prevented the eye from functioning properly. Whatever the details of the man's blindness, the words of Jesus caused molecules to form in appropriate places, forming functional receptors, neuronal connections, and brain cells, so that light entering the eye would form an image, and the man would have the ability to recognize the images that he had never before seen. To finish today, miracles are wonderful when they happen. 
But what is the danger of making your faith dependent upon them? Upon what, then, must our faith depend? Friday, January 4. From the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 258 and 259, we read, The work of creation can never be explained by science. What science can explain the mystery of life? The theory that God did not create matter when he brought the world into existence is without foundation. In the formation of our world, God was not indebted to pre-existing matter. On the contrary, all things, material or spiritual, stood up before the Lord Jehovah at his voice and were created for his own purpose. The heavens and all the host of them, the earth and all things therein, are not only the work of his hand, they came into existence by the breath of his mouth. And then from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113. Just how God accomplished the work of creation he has never revealed to men. Human science cannot search out the secrets of the Most High. His creative power is as incomprehensible as his existence. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. In class, discuss your answer to Sunday's final question. 2. Science talks about what it calls anthropic coincidences, from the Greek term anthropos, for man. The incredible fine-tuned balance of forces in nature that make it possible for human life to exist. Notice, though, the built-in bias revealed in the word coincidences. If you don't believe in God, you have to attribute these amazing balances to mere coincidence. Why is the belief that these balances were the product of a creator God a more reasonable explanation than to simply call them coincidences? 3. Consider the love of the Creator as he formed Adam and Eve and provided them with a beautiful garden home, knowing that he himself would suffer and die on Calvary at the hands of the race he was creating. What do we learn about God's love from the decision that he made to go ahead with the creation anyway? 4. How does the Big Bang Theory compare with the creation statement in Genesis 1.1? Might the Big Bang be a description of the way in which the universe came into existence at God's word? What issues or problems do you see in this idea? Why would it be dangerous to link our theology to any scientific theory, especially when science so often changes? Inside Story The Powerful Sword A pastor in a difficult, mostly non-Christian country was studying with a young man who had shown an interest in knowing about Jesus. Things were going well until the boy's father returned home from prison, where he had been serving a sentence for murder. 
At first, the young man's father was impressed with the changes he saw in his son, but when he learned that his son had been studying with a Christian, he became furious. He felt he had to save his son from the dangerous ideas Christians have. The father tried talking to his son. When that didn't work, he yelled, then he beat his son. But the young man refused to give up his new faith in Christ. His father knew if he kept on beating his son, he would soon kill him. And what good would that do? Then the father had an idea. He would kill the pastor instead. It would be worth another prison sentence to save his son from the Christian's heresy. The father staked out the pastor's house and learned his schedule. He sharpened his long knife. When the time was right, he drove to the pastor's house, waited for him to get into his car, and then blocked the pastor's driveway with his own car. When the pastor got out of his car to see what the problem was, the angry father grabbed him and forced him into his own car. The pastor recognized the man and guessed why he had attacked him. The pastor tried to share some Bible verses with the man, but the man yelled at him as he reached for his knife. Suddenly the man's hand froze in mid-air. His arm went numb, and he couldn't move it. The pastor calmly continued sharing scripture with the man until his attacker began to weep. A few months later, the father was baptized. As the members publicly welcomed him into the church, he asked for the microphone. I have a gift for the pastor, he said. Carefully, he unwrapped the long, sharp knife and said, This is the sword I was going to use to kill you. But you have a longer, stronger, sharper sword, a two-edged one, which is the word of God. That sword killed the old man in me. I am now a new man. Praise God. Your mission offerings help to reach people for Christ in some of the most difficult regions of the world. Thank you for your support. And Homer Trakatan is president of the Greater Middle East Union Mission, and he's the author of today's story.